Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers share stories inspired by the theme, Living Without, Stories of Letting Go. We are back with in-person audiences and rebooting by revisiting themes from our first season. And for our first featured storyteller, Claudia Sarek, this is not a metaphor. She shared at the original event in November 2010. She is joined by first-time storyteller Gigi Huntley and Anna Dimitriadis. It's story time. Claudia. Hi, my name is Claudia, and as she mentioned, I was one of the first speakers in this beautiful, beautiful series of the Story Story Night. That was really, I was nervous back then, but I'm really nervous today too. (laughs) So don't mind me if I stutter or say something that is out of context. So my story has two parts. One is let go willingly, Another one, it's let go before I was forced. January 26th, 1997. I'm on a Frankfurt airport with my husband, with luggage. An IOM bag, International Organization for Migration. They have told us, keep this bag close to you, and you better lose everything else, even your head, but you don't lose this. This is your identity. This is everything you have. Okay, I literally translated like having that bag clenched in my fist and not letting go. In the airport, we are waiting to load in in, uh, the Pakistan airline jumbo jet. Only passengers that are regular passengers were first class passengers. Everybody else had IOM bag, which means everybody else is refugee. Refugee from Bosnia, the country that has been destroyed in a war, four-year-old war that has not been ended at the time, or just has ended. So we are loading in the airplane, and flight attendants Pakistani airline, Pakistan airline flight attendants, they are gorgeous. They look like genies. Beautiful hat with that shawl, red outfit, really beautiful and very nice ladies. They tried to ease our trip. And we take a seat, screen goes down, down, mosque shows on a screen and we are taxiing on a runway. And Imam, which is Muslim pray, uh, the priest, he started praying. I looked at my husband. I was like, do we need prayer to take off? And at that moment, I started crying. I didn't know do, why do I cry, but I thought, maybe this is the last time I see Bosnian, so many Bosnian people in one place. I don't know where I'm going. Back in, the, in the Germany, when we had the interview to come to the United States, uh, they have asked us, where do you want to go? We, my husband had the, has a family here in Twin Falls, another cousin in Chicago, and my family friend in Memphis. We said, Twin Falls. 
The reason why Twin Falls is because we don't like big cities. So we are supposed to come like New York, Salt Lake, Twin Falls. We are flying from Salt Lake to Twin Falls, and it's really long flight. Well, we ended up on Salt Lake again. They told us, like, okay, there is a fog in Twin Falls. You have to overnight here. Tomorrow morning, you're flying to Twin Falls. Well, tomorrow morning, we landed in Sun Valley. I was like, oh, that looks really nice. If I'm going to live here, that would be great. Well. My bubble burst pretty soon <laughs> when I came to Twin Falls. What a difference geographically. <laughs> anyway, I was in the Twin Falls, and that was cultural shock. Literally, I didn't speak for a few days until, until somebody asked me something. And what I have noticed, people are not walking on the street. Back in country where I'm from, it's like Mediterranean. Everybody's on the street. Everything and entire life is happening on the street. And I come to Twin Falls and there is nobody on the street. I was like, is this ghost town? What's going on here? <laughs> My husband and I, after a few days at his uncle's place, we decided to take a walk outside because I cannot be inside anymore. So we took a walk and there is some yellow love following us. And I'm like, why is this dog following us? <laughs> My husband says, oh, probably we are only people who walk in here. <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> he doesn't know that people are walking. So his the other uncle came who lives in Boise to pick us up to visit his family in Boise. We are coming on a freeway. And as soon we passed Micron, and you can see like foothills and downtown from the freeway, I looked at my husband and was like, I'm moving. <laughs> he says, yeah, me too. <laughs> so in a couple of months, we moved <laughs> to Boise. And I'm really glad that I did it. Uh, when we moved to Boise, within a year, we start, I started working uh, at the Refugee Resettlement Agency and uh, as a case manager, and the, the resettlement agency was Agency for New Americans, where I was for six years, and I worked for a couple of years, and uh, after that, in a meta program that helps a refugee start business. And after that, I left the program and explored other options. The, uh, the first time when I went back to Bosnia to visit my family, that was the first time I saw my place after the war. It was devastating. It was heartbreaking. That city that was really nice and diverse city ended up like this, like 95% of the city is destroyed. So I'm coming home to visit my family and I'm talking with my family, and when I mentioned something, when I go back home, my father was like, when you go where? I was like, sorry, Dad, but Boise, it's now my home. I don't feel like I belong here anymore. Just to explain to you why I felt, why I don't belong anymore there. I'm in a mixed marriage. I'm Croatian by nationality, and my husband is Bosniak. 
in, in our city that has been called Mostar and has been known by Old Bridge, the biggest fight was in between our two nationalities. We have to choose sides. And I said, I don't belong here. I cannot. So I had to let go, realizing that there is really no life for me there. Coming back to uh, Boise on an airport, the custom officer looked at my passport. Welcome home. I felt like, yeah, I really, really feel like I'm home. <laughs> when custom officer tells you welcome home, it's really something. It's not like your family tells you welcome home. <laughs> so after, after a while, um, I have realized that um, really there is no way for me to go back. Even though my family have asked me several times, my cousins, and uh, they have asked me like, where are you going to move back? Even still today they ask me when you're going to move back. And I said, guys, just don't talk about that. That's not part of my life. Now I'm here in Boise, but before, um, after my life, actually, I, I'm just jumping here and there. In 2008, my husband, uh, who has established his uh, general contractor business, his builder, and uh, he had to move his business to North Dakota. And why to North Dakota when housing was plummeting, everything is down, he moves his business to North Dakota because oil, oil boom. So in 2011, we decided to move entire family to Dakota. Oh, that was a mistake. I let go Boise, but I didn't let go Boise. When I moved to North Dakota, that was a little town, like 15,000 people before oil boom. That town grew in a two, three years to 30,000. That was literally gold rush of modern day. I was afraid and like to live there because there is so much money, testosterone, drugs, orgies, and weapons. And I was like, no, I'm not going to raise my family here. <laughs> Move from back to Boise. So I told my husband. And of course, not talking about the cold and winter. <laughs> when you experience negative 36 with windshield factor negative 40, that's something that is like a deal breaker for me. And I told my husband, <laughs> I told, told him, do you remember that we have in front of the house back in Bosnia palm trees? He says, yeah, I do. <laughs> but what, that's not going to help us. And I said, honey, I love you dearly, but I'm moving back to Boise. He didn't say much. He, he knew that, that was, the line has been drawn. <laughs> so I moved back to Boise and um, started working last year, I mean, I started working uh, the, as a business development specialist at Economic Opportunity Program that helps, that, uh, that is initial meta program that helps refugees to start business, now has been uh, grown into the program that helps everybody who wants to start business. By the way, if you know somebody who wants to start business, call, give me a call. <laughs> so the, I'm back to Boise, and I'm not going to let go my Boise again. <laughs> 
I did once. So my story is about letting go voluntarily and by force. I have been forced out of my city, my country. I have been forced to leave, leave my family behind in a family history that has been dating back 500 years. I'm the only one who left. I had to let go. But I'm not going to let go of Boise again. Thank you. Gigi Huntley. Thanks. <laughs> My dad likes to joke around that he enlisted to avoid the draft. He chose the Air Force so the Army would not choose him. And that's how he met my mom, and eventually they had us. And then my dad spent nearly 10 years in the military, and then at some point took us back to his hometown, Wairika, California. Now, Wairika, at least the Wairika of my youth, was the kind of town that would hold the most amazing Veterans Day parade for you, but they would not celebrate you bringing home your Brown family, which is okay. So I survived it. But in 1978, when my dad was taking myself and my brother to the grocery store, and he was putting my little brother, who was three, into the cart, he bumped into two guys he had played football with in high school. And he introduced us to them. And then they went off to go shopping. And I went to my favorite spot, which was the book aisle, because I could read an entire Archie Digest while they went shopping. But that was the first time that I had heard a certain word, a phrase. And I, it was a mystery to me. And when we got back in the car, I needed to ask my dad, the man who taught me to read at three, Daddy, what's a half-breed? He looked a little concerned. Where did you hear that? That's what your friends called me and Scott. Half-breed, what does that mean? And he said, it's a not very nice way of saying that you're not white. What's that? What's white? And he said to me, a six-year-old, it's just something about the color of your skin and your mom's from a country where people look similar to the ones that we just fought a war with. OK. I, I kind of understood it, except for to me, no one has white skin outside of cartoons. So that was kind of confusing, because I was six. But it made me realize that we were different somehow. And it wasn't a good kind of different. So my dad had jobs that would often pull him away from us. He was in the military. And then he was a long haul trucker. So my mom had to deal with a lot of stuff by herself. And she wasn't very good at it. It was a struggle for her. In 1979, when I was seven, she was mad at me, and she happened to have a wooden spoon in her hand, and she hit me on the thigh. And spanking was not unusual in 1979. I'm not trying to make it all sob story. But the neighbor saw the welt that was in the shape of a wooden spoon on my leg, and she called some people, and they showed up at the house and pulled me and my brother out. And while we were outside, they asked us some questions. Does your mom hit you a lot? No, only when we're bad. Are you bad a lot? No, you can talk to my teacher. I'm pretty good. 
So they took us back inside and they explained to my mom that while it's okay to spank your kids, it needs to be an open hand and it needs to be on their bottom and no things, okay? And they left. And a few days later, when my dad got back from being a trucker, he barely walked in the door and she handed him a list and she said, these are all the times the kids have been bad and you need to spank them because I'm not allowed to. So he had just barely walked in, but he, he tried to softly spank us. And then he said, I'm going to go out to my shop and I'll be right back. But he was gone a few minutes and I wanted to go talk to him. So I went out there and I found him sitting on an upside down bucket, drinking a beer and sobbing, like ugly, ugly, ugly cry. And I rushed up to him and I said, what's going on, daddy? Are you okay? And he said, I need you to be good. I can't come home and have to hit you right when I walk in the door. Promise me that you will be good and that you will make sure that your mom is not bothered by your brother. And I said, I promise, daddy, I'll be good. And good became my core word. And this is a story about words. A couple of years later, my mom was in a bad mood. She was often moody. And so I got my little brother, and I got our basketball, and I went to the playground at the school. And a couple minutes into us playing, the sixth grade girl came up, and she took the ball, and she started to walk away. And I said, I'm so sorry. I'm going to need to have that back. And she turned around, and she punched me in the face. And she screamed, your mom looks like a monkey. And I was completely in shock by this and had fallen to the ground and she kicked me a couple times and she yelled for me to get up and hit her back. She wanted a fight. And I was a very weird kid and I told her, I can't do that, I'm a pacifist. <laughs> and she didn't like that. I don't know what she thought it meant, but she told me so. I don't like what you just said to me, you freak. And before she could kick me again, my little brother, who was a rising second grader at the time, said, a pacifist is someone who doesn't believe in fighting. So she shoved him down and bounced the basketball off my face, and off she went, screaming about monkeys and freaks. So when we got home, I walked in the door, and my mom saw the beginning of a black eye and a bloody nose and a fat lip, and she said, what happened to you? And before I could answer, my little brother said, Gigi got beat up because you look like a monkey. <laughs> Words matter. So that was a brutal time in my life. Fourth grade was not good. People were mean to me. We were weirdos and all that good stuff. But it was also not a good time for my mom. And I overheard a friend's parents once talking about her. And they used this term, manic depressive. And being a kid who learned how to read early, I also had my library card at a very early age. And I had this really old grocery sack that I used to carry my books in. And back then, they made some great grocery sacks. Like, you didn't need to do two Trader Joe's. You just needed one, and it could last you two years. And it was huge, at least to me. So I took my grocery sack and my library card, and I headed to the library where all the answers were. It's magic. And I looked up, not this, this, <laughs> manic depression. And I looked at all the stuff, and I had my dimes, and I'm making my Xerox copies, and I'm putting stuff in my paper sack. And I talked to the librarian, and she pulls out the microfiche, and I'm like, I'm finding the answers on this plastic stuff, right? 
early Google, it's perfect. And I diagnosed my mom that day. She definitely was a manic depressive. And I would find out decades later that that was not the right term. She was schizophrenic and had been diagnosed when I was about 18 months old. And my dad thought it was a lie. And he thought she had the baby blues because she was pregnant with my brother at the time. And he thought, no, you guys are wrong. That's not my wife. But I didn't find that out for a long time. So the summer before fifth grade, it had been a year since I'd been punched in the face and I'm horrible and everything else, and I decided I was going to figure out popularity. I think we all have done that. How do I fit in? How do I find my people? I went straight to the library with my paper bag and my you know, pocket full of dimes, and I read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> and it wasn't going to help me. So. <laughs> I went to the librarian who knew me by name, and I said, what do I do? This doesn't seem like something for a fifth grader. And she said, why don't you read the teen magazines and see what you find out, and you know we have more microfiche. And I friggin' love that microfiche, so I was like, I'm on it. But I also asked a lot of questions. And our dentist's wife had decided that we were her little project, and I'm grateful to this day that she did decide that, because that month I said, Rosalie, what do I do? How do I figure out how to be popular. How can I make it so people want to be around me and they want to be my friends? And she said, the Pop Warner football is looking for cheerleaders and you should go there. So I did and I made the squad. And everything spiraled out from that. I had to start with a short skirt, but whatever. Whatever you need to do to be popular. And at the same time, as I was growing in my friends list, I actually had the perfect excuse for still being nerdy and knowing big words and being really good at math because one day in class, a girl was doing math on the board, things that nobody likes to do except for me, and she got the answer wrong. And the teacher was like, it's okay because girls are not as good as boys in math. You're fine. But what about Gigi? She's really good at math. Well, Gigi is Asian. They're all good at math. <laughs> Finally, being Asian was going to help me. I can't help it, guys. It's just I was born this way. It's part of how I look and how I live my life. So I could be cheerleader and I could be smart, and that was great. And life was clicking right along. And I was doing everything I could to avoid being around my mom, who once told me never to tell her the bad things. So life was good. But one morning, I tried to wake her up. And I said, I need you to get up and take me to school. I have a math test. And she said, I don't want you to go to school. I want you to stay home, and we're going to go to the movies. And I said, we're not going to do that. I have a math test. Get up and take me to school. She said, I'm not going to do that. And it was too late for me to get on my bike and ride the five miles to school. So I ran to the bus stop, and I got on the bus. And as I was walking along, this boy stuck his leg across the aisle, and he called me the N-word. And I'd already had a bad morning, and I was hormonal and a girl. So I lost my mind, and I said, you are so stupid. You don't even know the right racial slur to call me. <laughs> and then, unfortunately, I told him the right racial slurs, but whatever. That, that can't be told at this event. And later, by the way, I did pass that math test, so. Um, got home, and my mom was really mad at me. Because unfortunately, that boy was our paper boy, and he knew exactly where I lived. And he and his friends had egged our house and our cars. And instead of being mad at the boy for doing that, my mom, being schizophrenic and not understanding a lot of things, 
she was mad at me. She said this would never have happened if you'd have stayed home and if we'd have gone to the movies. And high school went on from there. You know, I, I did everything I could to avoid being at home. And it was tough, you know. I didn't ever have a, a healthy mom, so I lived without that. And I lived without feeling very welcome in my own community as a child. And it took me a long time to find my safe people. And I think I constantly seek out my safe people. Thankfully, they are here tonight. <laughs> I never wanted that for my future kids. And that's my new core word, is motherhood. I have two 16-year-olds, one that I gave birth to and one that's a bonus because I fell in love with his dad. Plus, I always wanted a redheaded stepkid. Um, and I know they think I'm intense sometimes, and people have called me a helicopter mom, but I promise I'm not. But I want them to have their own words, and I don't want them to be things that they have to live without. And I'm grateful that they do have their own words. They have artist, a musician, an actress, an historian, and they have leader, and family, and loved. So I win. Thank you. It's Anna Dimitriatis. I've been on the featured storyteller stage two times, uh, my first time, and I'm a really good at, at microphones. Thank you, Jody. It was just another excuse to see your pants, which I love. Um, so I do, I, I really love that. I think it's, it's made my night. Um, for as nervous as I am. Uh, the first time I was on the Story Story Night stage was in 2010, um, and that was at the Linen Building, and I had just started working with Story Story Night. Uh, Jessica and I have been friends a long time, and I uh, told her I really wanted to help out, and so I started volunteering and um, ended up being a storyteller later that fall in that first year. And I told a story about my grandfather, and uh, my grandfather came over to the United States in 1948 on the Marshall Plan from Greece. And he is a brilliant mind, um, 91, still alive, living at home. Um, I just talked to him earlier today, actually. And he, uh, he was a structural engineer and aeronautics engineer, worked for NASA and uh, the Air Force. But all he really wanted to do in life was to be an American cowboy. So when he left his job as a professor at Caltech, he moved my family to Montana and bought a ranch on the uh, border of Idaho and Montana, and that was his heart's delight, was that 300 acres in the middle of nowhere. And um, I tell you that because it comes into play later in my story. Um, the second time I was on the Story Story Night stage was at the Rose Room in phase two of Story Story Night, and uh, that was a couple years later. I had just uh, exited my time with Story Story Night because I had just gotten married. I was starting a new career. I hoped I had interviewed with a job um, that I really wanted earlier that day. And I happened to tell the person that I interviewed with that I would be telling a story a Story Story Night. Didn't think anything of it. So I'm getting ready to tell my story, and I'm standing next to the bar, getting a little liquid courage, when this man sidles up to me at the bar and says, hey, can I buy you a drink? 
And I look over and, and I look at him, and I don't recognize this person at all. And so I think I said something kind of glib, like, well, I don't think I know you. <laughs> and he takes a step back, and he kind of shakes his head. He says, oh, I'm sorry. I, that must seem really weird to you. Uh, you interviewed with me earlier today. <laughs> so... My heart just sank. Not only am I really nervous to get on stage and tell a very personal story about my family, now I'm standing in front of this person who I really want to work for and had a great interview with earlier that day, and I didn't recognize him. So I accept the drink, make some ridiculous apology, and I go scurrying up to the stage and try to get myself together to tell a really good story so I can impress this person so that maybe he will hire me. So that was nine years ago, um, in November, in fact. And um, now, fast forward to today, and today is my last day at that job. So I know, I, I have a lot of, I, I, it's been a really emotional day, actually. And, and just as a side note, you know, in the time of COVID, um, all of the people that I work with work from home now. And so my last day clearing out my office that I have not occupied for the last two years, there was nobody in the office. And so it was just this really strange, you know, to leave this place that I've been at for nine years um, with nobody there. So I said goodbye to all of my colleagues on Zoom this morning and um, told them that I would, had agreed to come tell this story tonight. I don't know if any of you are out there. I can't see you, but maybe you are. Um, so, you know, a lot can happen in nine years. Um, in that intervening time between the time I started that job and today, my uh, husband at the time and I bought a house. We bought the property next door to us and turned it into this beautiful, big, gorgeous garden. Um, we put our heart and soul into that place. Um, we got two dogs and a cat and, you know, really built a life together. Um, during that time, I also, my family, um, with my grandparents getting on in years, they could no longer take care of the ranch that I mentioned earlier that my grandfather bought. Um, which is a place that I really was brought up in. You know, my whole world kind of in the summers in my life existed on this ranch. And uh, so we had to sell the property. And it was really hard for my family to let go of that. But I decided to take the little bit of money that I had gotten from, you know, we split the proceeds of the sale amongst the family members because it meant so much to all of us. We thought we should all have a little new beginning from the sale of that property. And so I took that money and I invested it into my property with my husband, you know, really built up the garden and built the studio space out back because I had started a business um, in my spare time uh, between my job and uh, working on this garden, making skincare products. And I started using um, botanicals that I grew myself and wild harvesting, and it really became my life's passion. Everything that I wanted to do outside of work was work on that business. And so I built up this garden with my husband, and we built this shop space out back for me. Um, you know, and all it felt like a lot of love because I was taking the money that I had gotten from the sale of this property in Montana that meant so much to me and investing it in my new life. So we finished up that project and then my husband and I got divorced. And I walked away from everything. Um, the relationship had gotten really toxic and I knew that I had to leave. And so I left the house, I left my dogs, I left my cat, I left the property, the garden, the studio space, I left it all behind. Um, and I started over. 
and that was about three years ago. Um, in that same period of time, uh, my childhood best friend and I reconnected, and he happened to be living in Greece, which if you recall is where my grandfather's from. So it was kind of amazing to me that he ended up, of all the places in the world, he ended up living in Greece. He married a woman um, in Athens and had been living there for the last several years, and her family happened to own a skincare company. So he invited me to come and spend some time with them in Greece after my divorce, and so I hopped on a plane and I landed in Athens about you know, six months later, and as soon as my feet hit the ground, it just felt like home to me. I felt like I was coming home. It was my first time going there. Um, before I left, I got the address of my grandfather's uh, childhood home and the name of the, of the school where he graduated as salutatorian of his class in 1948. So I arrived and told my friend about all this and that I wanted to find these places. And so he said, okay, well, great. Let's go on a little journey. Where's, you know, what's the address? So I give him the address and he starts laughing. It happens to be blocks from his house in this town, of, you know, city of five million people. My grandfather's home is blocks from his house. So we walk over and, and I'm standing in front of my grandfather's childhood home. And then I tell him what school he went to. And my friend starts laughing again. He says, well, that is where my stepdaughter goes to school. So she gives me a private tour of the campus of the school, and we find the little, because they're Greek, they, they document everything. There's you know, a plaque from 1948 with my grandfather's name chiseled in marble and you know, salutatorian written in Greek. And so I get to find these things, and I just feel like something is happening. You know? And so I come home from that trip just abuzz with this new energy. And about, um, so that's you know, a year and a half ago. Earlier this summer, I get a call from my friend, and he says, do you still want to come back to Greece? I said, well, yes, I do, absolutely. What, what's the deal? So he says, my in-laws are interested in hiring you. He says, with all your experience with your skincare company, they think you'd be a really good fit for this new company that they're starting. So everything starts to feel like it's falling into place. Like I had wanted to leave my job for a while. It had been feeling like I just needed new change. You know, with the divorce and leaving everything behind, I just wanted a change. And this seemed like exactly it. So I hopped on a plane again in this September and I went back to Greece. And I interviewed and I spent time in the company and everything seemed like, you know, how could it not be right? You know, every morning when we drove to the office where I would be working when I moved to Greece, we drove by my, my grandfather's house. I mean, I could almost like reach out and, you know, throw a rock at it, like out the car window. It just seemed like a calling to home. So I put in my notice at my job, and I've been working toward, you know, exiting that job. And two weeks ago, uh, I got an email from the people in Greece saying, thank you so much for your interest in our company. We really value your time. But as it turns out, we can't hire you. They, I won't go into the details. It's not because of me. <laughs> I'm great. No, um, really, it's just, it, it just ended up not being, not being the fit, right? And I had to let go of this feeling of like, how could all these things that were so right end up being wrong. And here I am two weeks from having no job, 
you know, in this career that I had spent so many years in and really loved the people that I worked with, how could all of this happen? I mean, I really thought it was like meant to be, you know, it felt like it was. But maybe it was just the thing that I needed to finally spur me to take action and make change in my life and let go of the things that were no longer serving me so that I could do something more. So about a week ago, um, I get another call from that same friend. And he says, I have an idea for you. And he says, my family, who is like my family, I mean, his family and I go way back. I, we've always known each other and loved each other for years and years and years. My family's interested in investing in your company. <laughs> so now I'm at this, this very strange precipice of, you know, of having like so much that I built up and I felt like was, was really my path and letting those things go and not knowing where I would land. I mean, I've been feeling like I've been just like flying through the air, like out of a cannon shot, not knowing where I'm gonna land. And, and now there's this opportunity in front of me, but it's terrifying because it's, now it's all me, you know, but it's with the help of these people who have been like family to me all my life. And so in a way, um, you know, I, I think that letting go of that idea that you know, your path is the right one no matter, you know, if it feels right, it must be right. It, 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 it is, it just doesn't always look the way that you think it's going to look. And so I don't know what my path is going to look like yet, but I do know that today is a really, really um, important day for me. And, you know, this is letting go of a job that I have known and loved for a long, long time and kind of stepping into the unknown, but something that's also quite known to me that I've been doing for years and years, I just never knew it might actually be my path. So um, thanks for listening to my story. <laughs>